heir for us, who are among the 144,000 redeemed and sealed from the earth. And I think we showed the 144,000 are those which were sealed and redeemed. Now, in one sense, you can't say Pentecost doesn't apply to the people in the millennium or the great white throne judgment, because they will receive God's Holy Spirit. Uh, the people of the Day of Atonement, or the Feast of Trumpets, uh, they are in a, another resurrection, the second resurrection, the great white throne judgment. They're not in the first resurrection. So, yes, they are resurrected. So, in a general sense, Feast of Trumpets would apply since it is a resurrection. Uh, and Day of Atonement is only for the Bride of Christ, 144,000. So specifically, that's all it includes. On the other hand, uh, those who are converted during the millennium and the great white throne judgment uh, will become part of the family of God. So they will become at one with God in the sense of being a familial or family oneness, but they won't be oneness in the same level as marriage as are the 144,000. I mean, when you get married, man and wife become one. Scripture is very clear. Uh, then they have children. Does that make them suddenly two? No, they're still one. But the children are part of the family, and they are the fruit of that oneness of husband and wife. So, specifically, the marriage is between the two, and it ends when one of you dies. If a child dies, that doesn't end the marriage. If one of the mates dies, it ends the marriage. So, yes, those three holy days do apply in a very general, larger sense, but those who are now being begotten of the Spirit of God are limited, and those who are uh, engaged to Christ at Pentecost are also limited in number to the 144,000, as is the first resurrection. These are the first fruits, that's all. So, yes, there is an application for everybody that lives in, throughout the Holy Days thing, but those three are specifically for the first fruits. And then those convert, converted in the millennium, that's their time of salvation. And those in the great white throne judgment and the second resurrection, that's their time of salvation. So those times, the millennium and the great white throne judgment, is when salvation is open to the whole world, to anybody who will come, Christ said. So they apply specifically to those people. And they don't apply to you and me because we will already be there in the first resurrection and be part of the bride. So what comes later is not about us. It's about those who will become our children. So I wanted to clarify that a little bit, lest somebody think that those people wouldn't receive God's Spirit like happened on Pentecost. Yes, they will in their own time and order and in the day of their salvation. But Pentecost, trumpets, and atonement are talking about our salvation specifically. So, just to clarify a little bit. 
Now, we're going to continue along this theme because I've got some more information I want to add about those who are sealed and redeemed. But let's review briefly here in Revelation 7. Uh, these end-time events of hurting the earth and the trees and doing damage uh, in the seven last plagues were held back here in uh, chapter 7, verse 3, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, we know the world is going to provide a seal, the mark or seal of the beast, in the hands uh, and in the forehead, otherwise you can't buy and sell. I might add a thought here uh, that I meant to say in terms of announcement. Uh, we, we're seeing the next wrinkle in what is coming upon us uh, now coming through. First there was the virus. Then there were the riots over George Floyd being killed, which morphed into something far more than that. But now we're seeing the next stage. Uh, I saw a news blurb uh, yesterday uh, about Minneapolis in, in Minnesota in general, I think, but specifically Minneapolis, into which they have decided to disband the police department. They won't have one anymore. Uh, they're going to do something different. They did not say what. They said they're going to get together and talk about it and figure out an equitable way to maintain the society. Now, you would think they would make their plan ahead of time, talk to whoever they needed to talk to, Black Lives Matter, ACLU, whoever, to get suggestions about what to do instead of the police. But they decided to go ahead and do away with the police first. Now, where does that leave you? <laughs> they are our first line of defense if there's trouble from anywhere. Now, they do misuse. They do abuse. They make mistakes. Uh, sometimes, like in the George uh, uh, Floyd thing, terrible mistake, murder. But that's not generally the case. That happens here, there, and once in a while. But they've decided to just get rid of the police. Then I've got other reports from all over the nation that they're planning on disarming the police so they don't have guns. This has already happened in Great Britain. They carry sticks around uh, instead of guns. So they're disarming our first line of defense. What does that tell you? They're expecting trouble, and they don't want the police there to defend the people when it comes. Now, this is happening across the country, primarily in those blue states or blue cities where you have liberal Democrat uh, mayors or governors. But it is being instituted. And they decided to remove their arms and disband the police immediately from that report in Minneapolis. So I don't know whether it happened overnight or whether it'll take a week, but that whole huge city will be without cops. What kind of news is that to rioters and looters? <laughs> you know, um, go for it. 
because they want our nation taken down. Anyway, in the meantime, God is busy working at preparing a people to be redeemed and sealed uh, from this mess that we see around us today, which is getting by the day worse. So he says, don't start all the trouble of the seven last plagues, the, the huge things, until later. We go down long before this as a nation. We're, we're the first thing to go. The beast kills the woman who rode uh, her and hates her, burns her flesh with fire and so on. So the New World Order is going to get rid of the United States before they institute everything else. We're standing in their way. And a lot of our politicians are New World Order people who are helping destroy our country. Anyway, the number that were sealed in their foreheads were 144,000 of all the tribes of Israel, and the name is 12,000 from each tribe. So these are all sealed. Then we went to 14, and we see uh, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion with him, 144,000. So they were being sealed ahead of the seven last plagues and the, the last events here before Christ uh, comes to rule in the millennium. But here, these are 144,000 who are standing with him on Mount Zion. So they were sealed ahead of time, and then they come with him as he comes. Had the Father's name written in their foreheads. And they sang this new song, which only those who are part of the 144,000 could sing. And these are those which were redeemed from the earth, verse 3, into verse 3. So we have this term redeemed or redemption that comes up. Now, you can go to churches and you can hear about being redeemed or redemption. They have a doctrine of redemption and so on. But just what does it mean? What importance does it hold for those who are turning to God. I think when we understand the term more and uh, putting it together with Revelation 7 and 14, it will, increase, it will increase our focus and our, perhaps, education in terms of what this is talking about. So these are the ones redeemed from among men being the first fruits to the God and to the Lamb. So the 144,000 are the first fruits. It doesn't say any more, any less. And they were also then coupled with those who are redeemed. So if there's only 144,000 first fruits, and these are the redeemed, then there's the same number, they're the same people, same beings. Now, let's go to uh, John 6. John 6. Okay, now here he's talking about Christ. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given uh, to the Son to have life in himself. No, I'm in five. No wonder this isn't working for me. I do that once in a while. Sometimes with this light, I don't see as well as I could. Chapter 6, let's find verse 27 here. Labor not for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto him, for him has God the Father sealed. Now, Christ, as we know, is the first of the first fruits. He was also, according to this verse, sealed. So, he is the preeminent of everything. First one sealed, first of the first fruits, and we'll see that he is redeemed, or was redeemed, from this death, this life. Uh, our sins were put on him, and he was forgiven those sins and redeemed from them. And it is his redemption that allows us redemption. We'll see that as we go through this. Now let's go to Romans 4. If we're among these people, it's important we understand what this is all about. Now we'll see here about Abraham that he is included in this number. Hebrews 11 seems to make that clear, but there's more evidence right here, as there is throughout the Bible. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? When Abraham was here, what did he find out while he was in the flesh? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has whereof to glory, but not before God. Now, we can do good deeds, or what we would term works, Christian works, uh, but will they get us salvation? Can you, get, can you work your way into salvation? Just because you do good, does that mean that you'll be saved by all the good things that you did while you were here on the earth? And Paul makes it very clear here and in other scriptures that that won't get the job done. Why? Well, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? What does sin do? The, the wages of sin is death. If we sin, we will die, receive the penalty of death for our sin. It's the automatic penalty. So you can sin and then do good things the rest of your life, and you're still going to have to die for your sin. It only takes one sin to die from it. The penalty of any one of the commandments is death. So good works won't save you. The Pharisees tried to do that. They went around and all by the, all the good things they did, they thought they were making points with God and that was going to save them. No. Only way it takes one sin to kill you. And all the good works won't get rid of that sin. So you have to have that sin somehow 
forgiven. All those sins that we commit. But one's enough. So, he could parade all his good works before God, but it wouldn't do him any good. He says he can boast all he wants, but it doesn't do him any good before God. For what says the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. What is that kind of belief? It's faith. You believe God. You trust God. You think God will do what he says he will do. You don't see God, but you read his word. You see his creation around you, and you know that somebody had to make this. It didn't just appear. It was created. So, Abraham, when God uh, communicated with him, believed God. Now, to him that works is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Are you, what are you working for? What are you doing good deeds for? Is it for salvation? Well, it plays into your salvation. It plays into your reward. But it has to be by grace that we are saved. Grace is simply unmerited pardon. I have sinned against God. You have sinned against God. Now, what do I deserve, having sinned in my life? I deserve death. Nothing more, because that's what you deserve when you sin. So I deserve death. Now, if I receive pardon, not of my own merit but pardon given to me by someone else who loves me and has the power to remove the penalty of sin. I have to look to someone and believe him when he says, my death was more important than all your sins, and I will die for you. I will take all your sins on me, and I will die. Now, how is his life more important than all of ours? He was God. And he gave up his Godship to become human so that he could have all of his sins tacked on him. I mean, all our sins tacked on him. So, he deserves, by death, to have the penalty removed. The penalty of our sins were removed from him, and he was resurrected. He now sits at the right hand of God because, through death, his sins were forgiven. I say his sins. He never sinned, but those sins were on him that you and I commit. And God forsook him because sin cuts us off from God. So he had no sin, and God was still in Contact with him, still supporting him, still helping him, still encouraging him. But then when all of our sins were put on his head, God forsook him. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So at that moment, when he was coming up to death, 
and dying, God the Father was not there. He had been forsaken. That was the most lonely feeling you can imagine. To have the one that you had been through eternity with and given up that Godship and come to earth as a human and then have that relationship completely broken. Now, does that tell us how much Christ loves us? Does it tell us how much God the Father loves us? That He sent His only begotten Son that we might receive salvation, that He would die for us. So when you talk about redemption, this is what we're talking about. People who are redeemed from their sins, how do you redeem something? Uh, let's say there's a dog at the pound, and that dog is going to probably down the line be euthanized unless somebody comes and pays a price and takes him home. That dog has been redeemed from death by somebody paying a price. Then the dog is theirs. They take it home and teach it not to bark and bite or whatever. But it's been redeemed. It's been saved from death. And that's what Christ does for us. We were headed for death because of our sins, eternal death. And by His sacrifice, worth more than all ours, He redeemed us. He bought us. He said we're bought with a price. And that price was His life. So the love of God is beyond all comprehension. You know, you and I have sinned. Maybe we were the worst sinners on earth. You could probably name some people in the past in history who committed more and more atrocious sins or, you know, serial killers or whatever, but did things that were, in that sense, more egregious or more or worse than what we've done. But it only takes one sin to kill you. In Christ, if you lived and only committed one sin in your whole life, then you had to be redeemed from that one sin. Now, none of us have only sinned once. We sin a lot more than that. But we're working on it. So, uh, the reward is not reckoned of grace, but of debt, if God owes you for all the good things you did. He doesn't owe you anything. You owe Him everything. He created us. He put us here. We owe Him the breath of life. We owe Him everything. He should be tantamount, number one, above everything in our lives. But to him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. In other words, we can accept and depend upon the blood of Christ to forgive our sins, and we believe that. We have faith in that, all right? Faith is the thing you don't see, but you believe anyway. Hebrews 11.1. 1. It's the subs- let's, let me read it to you. 
Hebrews 11.1. 1. Here's what faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we hope we won't die forever. And we trust a God that we can't see that he will give us eternal life. We were made human. We were made temporary. We live a while and then we're gone, right? He has offered us eternal life. Now, that life will be given to us because we believe in it, we trust in it, we have faith in it, and therefore we live according to his ways so that he will feel like giving us the gift of eternal life. It's not something we deserve, but it's a gift from him because he loves us. So believing it is the key. Your faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works. In other words, somebody who believes so strongly in God and has faith in God and trust in God, that even if he had no good works, that faith, that belief, counts for righteousness. And whatever sins he's committed are forgiven by Christ, he can be in the kingdom of God. Even if he did no works. What if somebody was newly converted? They had to come before they were converted, baptized. They had to come to have a belief and trust in God, right? Because it says he gave his spirit to them that believed, to them that obey. And the people did not sometimes know much doctrine right after Pentecost in Acts 2. They didn't understand much doctrine. They just saw what happened there. They heard Peter and the others speaking and preaching, and they believed it. Okay? And were baptized because they truly believed what they were seeing came from God. Now, what if one of them had had a heart attack right after he was baptized and had the laying on of hands and died? He would have not had time to do any works, right? He wouldn't have had some things on his ledger that says, well, God, I did this, 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 and this, so you owe me life. He wouldn't have had time to do that. He just believed, truly, was baptized, and then died. So what is he saved by? His faith, his belief, by the very grace and unmerited pardon of God, because his past sins were forgiven, and he could receive redemption by the price of Christ's death. So no works, but he'd be in the first resurrection. Now, I don't know anybody that anybody did that, but they could have. I have known people in the church over the last decades who have been baptized and died fairly shortly thereafter in a car accident or whatever. Do I think they'll be left out? No. 
They may not have had time to do many good works. Maybe they were converted on a deathbed. Maybe they never got off that deathbed and did any works because they couldn't. But their faith and their belief makes them eligible to be redeemed, to be forgiven. So works are not required for salvation. Now, God's good favor is important to salvation, and our reward is determined partly upon the things that we do, the works that we produce, the good things toward others, is part of our reward. But it isn't the basis of salvation. So the Pharisees and some Protestants have that all wrong. So God can impute righteousness without works. Boy, blessed would be that man where God looks at you and sees your attitude and he says, I'm not going to hold that against that person. That's that's pretty fine air you're breathing when you get to the point where God does not impute sin. He says, that person's living the way I want him to live. He sinned. I'm just going to forgive it. Always through the blood of Christ. But he's not going to hold it on your account. You know what I do when I sin? If I realize I did? I have to get on my knees and go before God and ask Him to forgive me. Because I don't feel that I'm in that position yet where God would not impute sin to me. I still feel that I need to get on my knees and say, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. And ask that the blood of Christ be applied for each and every one of my sins. But I would like to grow to the place where, I, whether I knew it or not, God would say, look, I know you're doing as best you can. You're trying. You're working at it. You're overcoming. You're growing. Uh, you don't really need to even come to me and ask for forgiveness for that one. I'm just not even going to put it on your record. But I like to clear my record every day. Every day. I like God to forgive me. He says there in Lamentations, he gives us a fresh start every day. Isn't that beautiful? That every day we have a new start. It doesn't matter what we did yesterday or ten years ago. We ought to go back and read that since we're here. It's just, it's, it's such a powerful scripture. Such a powerful scripture. Right after Jeremiah comes the Lamentations of Jeremiah. Um, I'll have to look for it here for a second. I think it's a page over. Sorry about that. Maybe I'm not going to see it. Does anybody else see it yet? Where? 3.23. Thank you. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassion fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. He doesn't consume us. He forgives us. 
and his faithfulness is great. We have a new fresh start every day thanks to God's love. What else can you say? You screw up. You make a mess today. And God says, okay, sun goes down, that day's over. We're moving forward. When the sun comes up, you got a fresh start to do better. To me, that is one of the most encouraging scriptures in the Bible, is that I don't have to carry around this trailer load of guilt about yesterday and beyond, but that it's forgiven. What kind of a God is that? i got to believe Him. i got to accept that. i got to know that every day is a fresh start. Now, probably sometime during that day, I'll screw up too. But then the next day comes, and God does not live in the past. God lives in the present and the future is where he lives. He even tells us that once we are part of the kingdom of God and become immortal, our sins will never be mentioned to us again, and that we won't even be concerned about the past. We won't think about the past. Life will be so good today and tomorrow that the past means nothing. Why would you want to go back to it? Well, one of the primary reasons we do today is because we know our life has not been what it ought to be all the way through. So, through lack of true faith and belief that Christ's sacrifice really does cover my sins, we still carry a certain amount of guilt for what we might have done 30, 20, 10 Five years ago, or five minutes ago, we worry about things that we don't need to worry about because Christ took care of it. You know, if you owe a note at the bank and somebody goes in, maybe you don't even know who, but somebody goes into the bank and pays your note off. And then you find out. The bank tells you, well, don't send any more payments. You don't owe money anymore. Wow. Who would do that? Who would take my note? Who would pay it off? Christ does. He pays it off. Well, if it's paid off, you don't owe any more, do you? When you ask for forgiveness for your sins and in your own mind make a promise to God that you won't do that anymore. Now, through weakness, you may, but we always need to be of a ready mind to say, with your help, I won't do that anymore, because we need God's Spirit and His strength to help us quit sinning. But as human beings, uh, we can set our mind not to, but it's real easy to go right back to what we have done. Now, that's the one you need to be concerned about, not the sin that you did yesterday, but the one you might do tomorrow. That's the one you need to be concerned about, because we're supposed to stop that stuff. We're not supposed to do that anymore. And how different are people than God? Now, he says he'll forgive through the blood of Christ, and he will not mention it to us again. 
And it's in the past. It's in the blood of Christ. And I've used the analogy that his blood ran out on the ground beneath the cross. And there the ground absorbed his blood. And the life is in the blood. So it is that blood that washes away our sins. So our sins are in the blood. Now God says he's never going to dig through that and bring those sins back. They're forgiven. They're gone. He forgets about it. But people aren't that way. They're not God yet. We're not righteous yet in that sense. What do people tend to do? If they know something you did, 60, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, 5, one year ago, six months ago, 30 minutes ago, they will tend to dig around in the blood of Christ and find your sins and bring them up to you. Or they probably won't bring them up to you. They'll bring them up because they're cowards. They'll bring them up to somebody else. That way they don't have to have a problem in bringing up your sins because somebody else will probably say, yeah, you're right. That's the way that person is. That's what that person did. So they dug around. You ever see people do that? They'll dig around trying to find what's wrong with you. Or maybe two of you will be together and you'll be talking about somebody and start saying, well, I wonder about so-and-so. I wonder about this. I wonder about that. So we're scratching around trying to find sin. Why? It's forgiven. It's gone. Why should we scratch around trying to find somebody else's sin? Because we want to be judgmental. We want to make ourselves feel better, I guess, that we didn't do what he or she did. So we gossip. We talk about each other. We enumerate. We remember each other's sins. We don't give each other a fresh start every day, do we? Not generally. Husbands and wives is a good answer to that one. You know, they fight sometimes. Some people tell you they never had a fight in their life, and I don't believe them. Because everybody does. But one or the other of them, they've got... They they always they kind of fight the same way each time. Because when you get mad, there are certain things that come up that he or she did 10 or 20, 30 years ago. And that's a good arrow for the fight. So we start reminding each other of what we did 20, 30 years ago and how we're still mad about it. That's not a fair fight. That's not a fair fight. We're supposed to remove those things from our memories and not bring them up to that person again. You love this person. But you still have differences of opinion, and sometimes it gets out of hand, and then any accusation, all is fair in love and war, they say. So anything they ever did is fair game to bring to this fight. 
No, it's not. No, it's not. Don't do that to each other. It's not godly. It's inhumane. I can't change what I did 20, 30, 40 years ago. I can't. I can't change what I did 30 seconds ago. It's already done. It's already said. Did you ever say something and try to grab it back before it got out there? (laughs) At least mentally you have. Oh, no. Did I say that? And somebody will say, yeah, you said it. Well, once it's uttered, it hits the airwaves. It's done. It's gone. You can't bring it back. But we always regret it, don't we? Later on, after you settle down, you'll say, I'm I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. When I'm angry, I sometimes say things I don't mean and things that aren't true or whatever because of the anger, and I'm trying to get the upper hand. We're trying to win the argument. Who wins an argument? Nobody. It's losers on both sides. If we're arguing and fighting and destroying our relationship with someone, nobody wins. So when we dig around in Christ's cross or stake for the sins of others and find them, we find out about their past and then we use it against them either to them personally or to others about them. Now, there is the difference between the righteousness of the Father and the Son and us. Because we're human and we still do those things. You probably don't like anybody to mention your past mistakes or sins, do you? Maybe you're a total masochist, and you like to beat yourself up, so if somebody else beats you up, that's okay, too. But can I see the hand of anybody that likes to be talked about in a bad way? That was easy to count. None of us like it. And what are we to do? We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. So if you don't like bad said about you, then in turn, you should not say bad about anybody else, right? Now can I see the hands of those who have been guilty of that? (laughs) Ah, Don't raise your hands. That's all right. I raise mine. I've been guilty of it. Working at making sure it stops. Because I have to love you as much as I love myself. And if I don't like to be talked bad about, then I shouldn't talk bad about you. It's that simple. And that difficult. (laughs) It's difficult. It really is. But we need to grow. We need to work on it. God gives us a fresh start every day. His faithfulness is always there. And we need to do that for each other. We get along a lot better. We wouldn't get offended. He tells us, both not to give offense, and he also tells us not to be offended. Offense goes both ways. You can't do it to somebody else, and you're not supposed to be offended by what they say or do. 
Now, there's a tough one, because it's really easy to get our feelings hurt and get offended. It truly is. It, it just happens automatically. Somebody says something bad about you, you get what? <laughs> defensive. Backed in a corner, you're defensive automatically. Somebody says something bad. Somebody says something nice to you, and you say, oh, I love you too. Maybe you won't say that, but I mean, in emotion, in feeling. We we respond positively, in other words, when somebody says something good about us. We, we like that. That feels good. Why? Because we want to be good. We want to do good. We want people to think good of us. And that's not wrong, because we want God to think good of us, too. So we need to be doing good so that everybody and God think well of us. But when it's negative, nobody likes it. You know, there are people who who just are offended. They're offended at life. They're offended at everything that happens. They're just upset. They, they're unhappy. It's just their kind of the what they project out there. And does that kind of approach and attitude to life make you happy? No, it makes you miserable. I have been hated of people, and there's been a not very many times, but I can even say that there's probably been a few times that I hated someone, at least for a period of time. Now, my feelings and my hate did what to me? It made me miserable. It made me unhappy. It made me angry. It was wrecking my attitude, my life, my feelings, my relationships. What was it doing to the person I hated? Not a thing. He probably didn't even know it. Didn't care. I was not destroying that person with my hate. I was destroying me with my hate. Somebody did me a real wrong. I've talked about it. Literally stole over a million dollars from me. Out of the bank. About a million and a half. Send money in the bank. He took it out. Half of it was mine. He took it out and blew it all. Mine included. You know, I had trouble with that for a while. I really did. I could have retired on that, and the equipment that went with it, I could have made a really wonderful living from. It was money I made on the oil spill up in Alaska. But I had, I lost some sleep over that. I lost attitude over that. I would lay in my bed and think of different ways that I might could be could do away with him without being caught. You know, all kinds of weird stuff can go through your mind when you're upset, angry, offended, and hate, full of hate. Somebody said to me one time, well, Daryl, it's just money. Yeah, but it was my money, and there was a lot of it. I'd never seen that kind of money before. It took me a while, and then I finally realized, Daryl, God forgives you, you need to forgive this, and move on. And I finally got it out of my craw. 
I finally let it go. And if I saw him tomorrow, he would not be in danger anymore because I put it behind me. Now, he didn't know what I was thinking. He might have suspected because he knew what he had done. But at the same time, it was destroying me, not him. So when we backbite and don't forgive each other and have attitudes, those attitudes are hurting us, not the one that we're having the feelings toward. It's us. It's our heart. It's our mind that hurts. God's not like that. He forgets it and moves on. He does not live in hatred. He lives in love. Even this world right now, as evil and rotten and wretched as it is, in a world where people will step on someone's neck and leave their knee there until that person dies, has a problem. Race has nothing to do with it. That's a human being and another human being, and you don't do that to people. It's awful. There's an awful lot of stuff in this world that are even worse than that. Does God hate the world now because of all these things that they do? You know, he sits on his throne on the sides of the north, and he sees and hears everything that goes on down here. 7.7 billion people, most of them living in one kind of sin or four more, in the stench of sin. He hates sin because of what it does to people. And he hates it. <clears throat> but he doesn't hate the people who are doing it. He loves them. Now, how can you have a stench in your nostrils and your eyes are seeing all the awful stuff that is being done down here and still love those people? you got to be better than we are. And God is a whole lot better than we are. Because he said he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that they might not perish but receive eternal life. Now that includes all those people from Adam to Noah who were so bad God said, I wish I hadn't even made them. I'm just going to wipe them out. It's so bad. But because of one man's righteousness, he said, ah, I'm going to save them. We're going to start over. We'll see if we can get this done better. So he didn't give up on us. And then he did start over. <clears throat> and he started Israel. And Israel sinned. And he divorced her. Got upset. But he still loves her. Then he says, we're going to try it again. So he sent Christ to die for us and to give us His Holy Spirit to help us and strengthen us. And mankind basically has denied even that. And the whole world lies in sin to this day. But there's a very, very few people 
who are reading this book and responding to God. He loves everybody. But those who will choose to love him and will respond and serve him and obey him, he has a certain affection for that he does not have for the rest. Now, you who are converted, being changed, and are part of the church of God, he calls something else. He says, you are the apple of my eye. Now, there can be a lot of apples on a tree. I've seen trees just loaded up with apples. And I've gone out there and looked at that tree and thought, I want an apple. So what do I do? I start looking them over. Well, here's one that's bird-pecked. Here's one that looks a little green. There's one that's a little shriveled. I want just one apple, and I want it to be a good one. And when I settle on that apple, whether it's within reach or I need a ladder, that's the apple I'm going to have. That's the one I settled on. That's the apple that my eye sees that I want. Christ loved all the disciples, but he had the closest relationship to John. Nothing wrong with that. John had an attitude and an approach that was probably more like Christ than the others. And he just responded to him better. Now, of all these people out here, these billions, who are denying God, or saying he doesn't exist, or I evolved, or whatever they got, he loves them. He's going to save them in the millennium or the great white throne judgment. But he's called a few out now. He says, I don't call many mighty and noble. I choose the weak and the base to confound the wise. So when he looked down here and he decided he was going to call some people at the end, he says, many will be called, few chosen. He looked down here and he looked around and he found some that were kind of weak in base. They weren't, they weren't the whippiest looking human beings, okay? And he said, that one's got a bird pack on it. That one's a little withered. That one looks a little green. I can see under the skin, and that one sours all get out. And he says, I think I'll do this. So he called you and me. Wow. The apple of his eye wasn't much to look at or to taste. It wasn't mighty and noble. It wasn't the one I was looking for when I described that a while ago. It was the weak in the base, the ones that don't look so good. Now, he has faith and confidence in himself. He said, I can take that one that's wormy, and I can get rid of the worms, and I can heal the hole, and I can fix that one so that it will become the apple of my eye. Do you think when you were out in this world, you were the apple of God's eye? None of us were, were we? 
when he looked out over mankind and was looking for people that his apples, he would have certainly overlooked me. I've met a lot of people in my life who weren't even converted that I thought were a lot better people than I am, just as a human being. Surely he would have picked them. But he says, no, I don't do it that way. I take the wormy ones, I take the wrinkled ones, I take the sour ones, and I change them. And when I get them changed, they're the best apples on the tree. They're the ones I look to. They're the ones that I favor. Why? He recreated us. He converted us, changed us. That's what conversion means. We're changed. We don't think the way we used to think. We think differently. We think more godly. We think more kindly. We think more lovingly than we used to. We don't do a lot of the junk we used to do. We put it aside. And then we become something that's lovely to him. And then he says, you are now the apple of my eye. You're the ones I look to. You're the ones that are the most delicious to me. You're not like you used to be. Now you're different. Don't you like it when somebody changes? Let's say you got a kid. That's an easy example. And they got a stinking, rotten, rebellious attitude. Maybe it lasts for a long time, from age 2 to 18, whatever. And then they change. They grow up. And you think, what happened to my son? Where's my daughter? You're not the one that was fighting with me last year. You've, you've matured and come to respect and suddenly think your old man might know something after all. Maybe it's not at 18, maybe it's at 30, whatever. It all varies. But what I'm saying is we like it when there's a change. Even on a small time basis. I got a kid here who's kicking my shins, yelling, screaming. And I pick him up and paddle his rear end. And he gets scared. And then he changes his attitude. And suddenly he becomes sweet and loving. And then I can pick him up and hold him without getting kicked and say, I love you, and then say, I love you too, Daddy. Oh, I like that change. You've all seen it. When a kid changes its attitude. And it's just simply more lovable. You can stand to be around it for a change. Well, that's the way God is with us. He loves us. He cares for us. He sent His only begotten Son to save us and to change us into something lovable. How pliable are we? What has He said of Israel in the past? They're stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious. And that's what human beings tend to be. So we're becoming loving and pliant and changeable and have a different attitude where we're Willing to serve, wanting to help, of a good mind and attitude. Pleasant, a pleasant person. Do you like pleasant people or nasty people? You like pleasant people. And we all go from one to the other, to one degree or another. 
But on the whole, you really prefer someone when they're being pleasant instead of a jerk, don't you? God's the same way. So we need to become, we need to qualify to be the apple of his eye. And you do that by believing him and trusting him and following his ways. Then he wants to give his pardon to you. He wants to forgive you. He wants you in his kingdom. That's where I want to be. I want to be to the place God wants me there. I don't want to be in the place where often I feel I am, where God says, mm, let's think about this. Yeah, well, this, yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe he's going back and forth on me, pondering my heart and trying to determine, do I really want him in my kingdom? Or shall I pass and fix another wormy one instead of that one? No, I want to get away from that. I want to get to the point where whether I know it or not, God's saying, yeah, I want you. I want you. Giving you pardon is going to be so easy. You know, sometimes when people ask for your forgiveness, maybe they've said or done something and they say, forgive me, I'm sorry. You know, the tone of voice they say it in makes all the difference in how you feel about them. If they grudgingly say, yeah, I'm sorry, I said it, forgive me. You're not inclined to, to just melt in love at that moment, are you? But if they humbly say, I'm sorry, I goofed, I did the wrong thing, forgive me then you feel good toward them because you feel the repentance is real. It's not grudging. It's not chip on the shoulder. You know the difference. So does God. He knows when we become humble and meek and compliant. Well, I kind of got off here on another direction and didn't get through much of this, but these things are important that we... We understand God's feeling toward us and how we ought to feel toward Him and toward each other. We need to look upon each other as the apple of God's eye. Every one of you, I need to look at and say, there's one of God's chosen ones. There's one that God is working with. There's one that God is cleaning up and making beautiful so that he wants it. And if I have that attitude toward you, I'm going to treat you better. I'm going to be nicer to you. I'm going to love you. And I'm not going to say bad stuff about you because I know you belong to God. And if you belong to him and he wants you, what can I say bad about you? I mean, really. If somebody has been transformed to the level of converted, compliant, loving children of God with the resurrection and their hopes and dreams, and they belong to God, who am I to criticize anybody that belongs to God? He loves them. He gives them a new start every day. 
Am I so righteous beyond God's righteousness that I don't? Because I know I'm a little better than God does. No, you don't. You don't know anybody better than God does. And he gives you and me both a fresh start every day. Wow. You know, we don't really have room for a bad attitude, do we? When you wake up in the morning, if you think about it, God's yesterday's gone. God has given me a fresh start. We ought to be so thankful we wiggle all over. So thankful that we have that kind of God who holds eternity in his hand, and he's working with me out of 7.7 billion He's working with me as a potential part of only 144,000. I ought to be so thankful, so deliriously happy that I wouldn't go out and hurt anybody because I'm being thankful. Thankful for everything God gives, the breath of life. Wow. We have everything you could ask for. We have the blessings of eternity and no more insecurity, no pain, no death, no sorrow, no tears. That is our future if we make it from here to there. Satan will be bound. He won't be around to tempt us. Our nature will change so we won't be tempted. What a wonderful future we have. Because Christ died for us and forgave our sins and is willing to give us pardon that we don't deserve. Where in that is room for a bad attitude? There isn't room in there. So get over it. That's easy to say, but let's work on it. Because that's where we need to be.